Welcome to the Restaurant Reality Show, the weekly podcast that promises to share the real stories that take place behind the scenes in the food service world. I'm your host, Sam Knoll, the founder and president of the website consultancy, samknoll.com, as well as a 20-year veteran of the restaurant industry and a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America. Now, today I'm talking to Chef Lawrence Cake, Uh, who I was lucky enough to work with about 25 years ago in a very cool little restaurant called Coyote Cafe. Now, it's been a lot of years since he and I have touched base, so this was a lot of fun to discover that really over the last 20 plus years, Lawrence has worked in what seemed to be almost every cool restaurant concept that has opened in in the Tidewater, Virginia area. Now, he's pretty straightforward in his opinion of life and work, but he also carries a lot of fun stories. So I say, let's get started. She first met you when I was bouncing at Offshore, uh, and you were working at the After Hours Club. Yep. Oh, yes, the After Hours Club. Cape <laughs> <laughs> hey, Henry. <laughs> that was uh, that was an interesting time of life, you know. It was. Uh, for me, certainly work-wise, it was it was very interesting because I was at that time I was waiting tables five nights a week, and the same five nights a week I would you know I'd get off work there at you know nine ten o'clock, and then at twelve thirty the after hours club would open, so I'd have like this little two hour span during which I'd go around and stop into other places around the beach and say, you know, Hey, you guys coming up tonight, et cetera. And then go and work until seven 30 in the morning. And then go home and sleep for a bit and then go to the restaurant the next day. <laughs> it was interesting life. Work, go drink and then go up, get up and go back to the restaurant. <laughs> yeah, seriously. It's uh yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. So you cooked at Coyote. Where else did you work after? Cause I left Coyote in 90. When? 95, 96. Yeah. I guess it was 96. Where else did you work after that? Or, you know, how long did you stay at Coyote? Um, not too long. Cause I was running lunches. Oh yeah. And, um, uh, Mike and Corey hired me over at Atlas. Okay. Paid me a lot more money, you know, so yeah. I didn't have to work two jobs. Because when I was yeah. at Coyote, I was also doing the catering for Henry's. Ah, okay. So I'd leave Coyote and go over and do <laughs> the upstairs room and cater over there. Yep. And then, uh, and then I got into catering with Gary, but then I took some on my own down at um, – uh, Town Point Park, the TGI okay. Friday, TGIF, yeah. um, the head of development came and found me at uh, Atlas. We Gary and I had done a joint effort down there, but he couldn't make it, so I did the whole thing, which is in both our names. Hmm. That's and cool. he he wanted me to do all the uh, VIP tents. Very cool. So I would do the VIP tents on stage left. And then they would rent out stage right and tell and tell whoever rented I was their preferred caterer. So I used to get a lot of jobs like that too. That's not a bad gig, frankly. No, because I'd I'd be running lunches and Atlas and hire a guy to go to five one. They let me use that, 
to yep. get on the trip for that night, then load up the car with all the food, head down to Town Point, get all that done, then head up to uh, one of the bars in Waterside. Yeah. <laughs> or actually, I go, go down to Sydney's place and hang out there. Yep. It's wild. What was it like working at Atlas? I, I was always, you know, because I, I then moved out of town and, you know, essentially in 96, um, but came back with some frequency and I always ended up eating it at one of the Atlas diners. And I, I always thought that one seemed to be a smart move. It, it was kind of like they'd, they'd figured out how to, to almost standardize to some, to some idea, you know, their location so they could keep opening new ones. Was that kind of the way that one worked or what, what did that you think of that? Um, they were, they were patterning, patterning that off of uh, Ruby Tuesdays. Oh, interesting. Ruby Tuesdays, they opened up 17 of those and then sold that off for millions. And that was their original plan was to, to do exactly that. Just keep opening them until they get to a certain level, they can get bought out. Yep. But that went awry. They, they, because of Corey, they were, they were, there was a chef driven system. Yeah. They had standardized recipes, but you had to have culinary skills to actually pull it all off. That's true. And, yeah. Cause the level of dining was up high enough. You would need that. Right. And that was where the problem came in. Yeah. You couldn't find enough, you know, like they have today, when you couldn't find enough good people to maintain that level. So where their downfall was, I was the last chef in their system when I left. Okay. And they went to, instead of making, you know, I made my mashed potatoes. I made, you know, so much was homemade. They went to boiling the bag potatoes. And, and so many of my customers after I left would tell me, we stopped going there after you left because they went to all this crap. Yeah, the food just, yep. And eventually, you know, they paid a price for it. Yeah, that is an interesting one when you think about it, because, and and I guess um, you know, I talked with, with JT um, uh, two, two nights ago for a bit, and we were talking about the idea of, you know, if you open a restaurant, you... You know, one there there are numerous ways you can make more out of out of a restaurant business, and one way is to open up numerous ones, and uh, and if you can standardize things enough, and if you can get, you know, you get a little economy of scale in your buying, and you know, numerous pieces like that, it can work well. But what you just brought up is kind of a, a key piece of the whole thing: is if you don't have the right talent in it to run it. You know, it's not going to work. That's why McDonald's works is they've, they've removed the need for any sort of talent, you know, <laughs> without a doubt. Man. So, so you did Atlas and then what, what all, what came after that? Well, they actually moved me to, um, during the Atlas thing, they actually moved me to 501, uh, okay. take over the chef, chef there for a time, uh, for a period of time until they opened their new Atlas out in uh, Greenbrier, then moved me back out. <laughs> but uh, I went from there and opened my own restaurant out in Franklin. Oh, tell me I about had, that. I had two investors, or actually my old old boss at Winston's Cafe, mm -hmm. and a customer who loved my food 
they approached me when I was at Atlas said, look, we want to open a restaurant, but we're not going to do it without you. <laughs> so it cost me nothing again. I figured what the hell, you know? Yeah. That's what I've been pretty much working towards. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the only problem was it was a beautiful building, but it was out in the middle of Franklin. <laughs> <laughs> and we held our own. When we started out, everything was good. We had good customers. Everybody loved the food. And But the problem was is continuing increases in rent so that he wouldn't have to pay a dime. Interesting. And by the time we got to the top end, it was $5,000 a month. And there's not business enough to sustain that in Franklin. So yeah. We, what, what, what kind of food were you all doing? Was it, was it high enough quality? Was it kind of a destination restaurant or was it a little below that? Yeah, I, mean, um, I was doing my usual, you know, seafood steaks, mm-hmm. you know, everything best quality. I did all hand cut steaks, you know, my crab cakes, which have almost no filler. Yeah. Um, you mean like real, real crab cakes in other words? Yes. <laughs> And a few had a few cracker crumbs to hold it together. Exactly. <laughs> but um, like you said, the food went over, you know, great. Uh, the whole problem was just the increase in cost. Mm-hmm. You know, so we wrote the lease that our first year was not guaranteed. Only after a year did we personally guarantee the lease, which okay. gave us a year basically to see what, see what we could do. Mm-hmm. So by the time we hit the end of the year, we realized that the increase in costs, you know, it, we're, it's just going to kill us. Yeah. So we, we got out after the, after the first year. I would say, I'm just trying to think. I mean, and, and I, I was in, I was in the, the sub shop business for a while, you know, with, with numerous, uh, with numerous ones of those, actually, this was zero subs, which I know you know. <laughs> oh yeah, um, you know, did that for a while. I, I would say, I without a doubt know more people who did own restaurants and probably got out because of the costs. It really is interesting if you just look at your basic overhead in it. It's crazy, just the rent, you know. And just crush you. <laughs> oh, well, I know a guy uh, down here at the beach. He's paying seventeen thousand two hundred a month, and his rent goes up five percent a year. So that's his lease. That's crazy. And it's a very popular restaurant. You'd know it if I said it. Yeah. So they've been around for twenty years, but at some point, you hit the law of diminishing returns. That's exactly right. You know, it, that's hard to increase your profit 5% a year to maintain that same profit level. Yeah, it is. It is interesting because you know, you're right, because you can increase what you're charging, but not by much. And especially if you have regulars, that that's a, a painful piece of it, you know, and you'll, oh, you'll yeah. lose folks. And that's uh, yeah, that so that huge rent is uh is a really tough one and and it's you know that's that is the the downside to running a a, any retail business is the landlords really hold all the cards to some degree and there have been other restaurants that have had to close and move just because their rent got too high so 
Yeah. Well, there's one moving right now that you know, uh, Zimmerese. Uh-huh. They're moving out of that little spot back, back in um, Chicks Beach, moving up here to Shore Drive and Old Great Neck. Okay. Uh, it's the old corner market. Oh, yeah. So they got Cal Casir as their, land, as their landlord. Interesting. I do like how uh, as, as we age – we end up knowing who most of the landlords are in town. We end up know, you know, I mean, it's, it all just kind of gets bought by new folks, but it's all this same little pot of people that are all involved in it, you know? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, the, the restaurant world is, it's a small world. People don't realize that you see all these restaurants. Once you get into it, the key players are known to everybody. You know, everybody knows everybody. It's very, very true. But, uh, as a matter of fact, a little side note, Cal Kassir, he owned the building out where Atlas was in Greenbrier. <laughs> we were, back then, we were paying 10 grand a month. Yeah. But at least with, with Atlas, you had, a, you had a more sizable location, too, though. Yeah, yeah, we had a couple hundred seats. Yeah, so if you're filling those couple hundred seats and you can turn them, you know, then those numbers can work out. But, but even that, you still got to, you know, a couple hundred seats is a, is a significant number to, to turn. <laughs> no, we did it out in Greenbrier. The Greenbrier is so populated. It's crazy out there. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Winston's was in that shopping center right next to where they were. Yeah. That little place had been there for 30 years. Still going. Isn't that amazing? And those I'm, I'm always impressed with, too. And some of those, you kind of wonder, you know, if they, what sort of a, I guess some of them, they own their 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 building even. <laughs> but um, well, Greg, he and I are still friends and partners in catering. Um, he went in there. He, he had a hot dog heaven and opened up Winston's and actually sold it for a time, ended up buying it back <laughs> and is running it now with a partner. So it's sort of a funny story, you know what I mean? Go find all that. Without a doubt. Yeah, the whole idea of of selling your business. I guess we hear that happen in other lines of work, too, where somebody sells a business. They, you know, they make a, a little chunk of money on it. They go off happy for a while and then they end up looking at what the new owners are doing to that business in the future. And they and it's not working right. And so they come back in and buy their business back and then make it, you know, take it up a a few levels at that point. Yeah. The most common one I've ever heard is because banks don't like restaurants. It's normally a rest. It's normally an owner finance. Mm -hmm. Gary Black went through this at uh, Coyote when it was on the block, Mm -hmm. Uh, sold it when he opened up the new one over on Laskin, owner financed it and then had to take it back you know, twice. Mm-hmm. And they, they don't make it work. They can't make the payments, you know, so you got to be, you end up with it back, even though you want to be rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Without a doubt. Interesting. So, well, that, so, was actually right, so- that was actually Coyote's inception is when Rick moved uh captain's table or crawdads down to Crawdad. the captain's table. Yeah. At Second Street, he was stuck with that lease, 
And so that's when Rob Atherholt, Keith Korn, and Karen, and Rick came up with the idea of Coyote. Well, and that was actually how Coyote was born. Well, and Coyote, when it opened, was what, like five, six seats, wasn't it? Nine tables total. Okay. So it's not quite that small, but even still, nine tables total, that's not a whole lot. (laughs) No, no, not at all. That's wild. And then uh, I remember when they opened up the chef's table down in the kitchen. That was fun. And Frank Bowman would come down there and eat, tip everybody uh, gift cards to his place. (laughs) I'd rather have cash, Frank. Thanks. (laughs) Exactly right. (laughs) Seriously. When you think about that as a restaurateur, it's not a bad deal if that's what you're going to tip because you can tip somebody – you know, you're getting back. Yeah, I mean, they're gonna they're gonna come in. They're gonna spend more than you gave them. Plus, you know, fifty dollars worth of food's only costing you, you know, a, a, a small percentage of that. Right. Yep. Oh no, he was a smart man. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, I worked for Frank, certainly at Frankie's, for. I was always at Frankie's probably a total of five years, waiting tables, bartending, never did any cooking there, but uh, that, that was an interesting business too. <laughs> all of these, all these beach businesses are, uh, it's just been, it's been interesting to watch them come and go over the years and who sticks around, who doesn't, you know, and as you said, it is a small world. And so a lot of the same folks are just working <laughs> they work together at one place and they head off somewhere else, work separately. And then somehow they end up working together again, or they go open something together or, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of options. So, well, so, like, yep. so, so, okay. So you owned that one place. What, what came after that then? Uh, after we closed, I came back and went to work for, uh, uh, Mahi Maz. Ah. And- uh, just a grill guy. I matter of fact, when I was at Atlas, uh, Rob had actually called me, wanted me to come down to be his sous chef. Interesting. But they weren't going to pay me as much as I was making. I was like, well, that I'm not going to take a, a, a cut and pay to come work for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I like you and all, but <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. Interesting. Okay, so you worked at Mahi Maz. I always liked that restaurant, too. And that was a pretty sizable place also. Oh, my God. We did uh, – I remember the busiest day I worked there. I was there in the summer. We did – and they blown that. They blew that away after I left. Yeah. But we did $40,000 one day. Yeah, it's huge. During, during the whole beach, the beach music festival. Oh, well, of course. Or the yeah. American Music, AMF, the American Music Festival. Yeah, and that is, I guess that's the one interesting part also of working at a, a place like a beach is during the summer when there are festivals going on, you can do just incredible business. And then winter hits and you got to cut your staff, you know, hopefully if you're a, a staff member, you're high enough up that they hold on to you. And then the owners go ahead south somewhere for this, you know, <laughs> to, to yeah. make it through the winter. 
Yeah, working working on notorious town is definitely crazy. Yeah, without a doubt. And yeah, so yeah, so you you end up with a season that is three months long, and that's it. And actually, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but a lot of rents are based around that. A lot of landlords will they'll they'll do um, double rent in the summertime when you're doing great, and then you have nothing to worry about paying in the wintertime. Interesting. I did that one. I didn't know. I because uh, the only the only times that I've really played with, you know, with with landlords and and paying rent has been in this area here. I'm in, in like Chapel Hill and uh, Durham, North Carolina. And trust me, I'm jealous. I'm a huge uh, UNC fan. Ah, very nice. Well, my, my wife is a professor at uh, Keenan Flagler, the grad school. Oh, okay. So, um, but uh, it's also amazing to me how many people that I talked to over the years are UNC fans or Duke fans? It's like one of those two, it seems, almost everyone. And maybe it's just an East Coast thing, you know? But uh, but where was I heading with that? No, I think it's just, uh, you know, here, it's, I think, uh, the problem around here, and you get to the coast also, say, and uh, I know my sister's in Wilmington, is just the rents on any of these new developments are just absolutely ridiculous, you know, what they're wanting to charge, you know, for tiny little places. And uh, it's it's very difficult to look at. Rent's the worst enemy of any restaurant owner. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Yeah, because you can have a, a proven concept somewhere and you know, all right, we need better visibility. We need, you know, I mean, there's some things you want to do in a better location, but you might be looking at rent that's twice what you're paying. And and that just, <laughs> that's just too hard to deal with, kind of. So. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I used to work for a company. You, you remember Chinelo's Pizza? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I used to be a DM for them, and I had five stores. But one thing I learned with them is they'd always go in these cheaper shopping centers. Mm-hmm. You know, and they they would be able to negotiate down their rent because of how much foot traffic the store would bring. Oh, just because it would, it would be trickle over to the rest of the shopping center. Exactly. It was they were they were like a an anchor in a shopping center. Which is interesting to be a restaurant and create that much walking traffic. I mean, that's nice where you have this existing business and you know. <laughs> that any of our stores in this in a shopping center, we're going to pull X amount of traffic a month. You know, that's kind of powerful stuff to be able to use. Oh, very. Yep. Interesting. Well, let's see. So, what else? So, you know, Mahima's. Um, I was trying to think. You know, again, talking with JT, it was. Uh, it was interesting looking back at, at, at our time at Coyote. And, uh, and I, I talked with another friend yesterday and, and he was talking about some of the, uh, the hazing that went on at, at his restaurants. Um, I brought up the, the old Bay grinder being sent around the beach, looking to go acquire the old Bay grinder, you know, that, 
it, it technically doesn't exist, you know, but they, you'd still send some, some young new guy from restaurant to restaurant and they'd send him on to the next place saying I was led elsewhere. You know, do you have any, any of those stories that you recall, uh, along those veins from, uh, from your restaurant? Gary Black created a, he got a box and stenciled an old bag grinder and put a lock on it <laughs> and it, and put some weight in it. So you see these kids walking down the street with this big box. And I, I was wrecked one time. I started laughing so hard. <laughs> but we had this one kid, he was a regular at offshore and I was running, uh, working down at Crawdads. And so he comes in as he was working at, um, World Brothers. Uh-huh. So he rolls in, asks the old bay grinder. It's like, oh, we, we sent it here. And so he goes, he comes back later. And he goes, I need the finer screen. <laughs> this is like two hours after his first run. <laughs> they had been running around all night. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's just it's it's this I guess it is. It's just the 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 uh, the joys of being the uh, the new person on a job, you know. Oh yeah. Especially in the restaurant world, which is just known for its its uh I don't know the right word to put to it. <laughs> cruelty. <laughs> there you go, cruelty. That works. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because really, yeah, the guys who are sending them all over, they could care less, you know. And they're busy. Oh, no. Yeah, they're busy and they don't they don't really need him, so <laughs> that's right. Which has got to be a little telling for that person. You realize, all right, I just spent the whole night. I guess I got paid to walk around and look for this thing that doesn't exist. And uh is that bad? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can go look for the old bay grinder. Is there anything else like that you want me to go find tomorrow night? You know? <laughs> well, you always had the can steam. Go next door and get a can of steam <laughs> or give me a package of dehydrated water. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. The can of steam. I like that one. I didn't know that one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I also I was I was always a fan of the uh, somebody's working on the fryer. And for everyone listening, oftentimes we were working in shorts all the time. Because it was hot. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was a beach town. And so we're working in shorts, and somebody's working by the fryer. And all you'd have to do is like flick some water on somebody's leg. And the first reaction is that that's like, that would feel like this, this you know, hot oil that just hit your leg. I mean, <laughs> send them into the dance. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I I mean I I always wear shorts year round. I remember when I was down in Franklin, they used to call me the crazy one from the beach because I wear shorts year round. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? It's like you're not back in the kitchen. You don't know. Yeah. It's like I'm not outside long enough to get cold. So what does it matter? That's right. Nope. Very very true. Too funny. Well, so so what else is going on then these days? Any, uh, I know you're healing up, which is good. Um, 
have you have you talked to any other uh, any of our, our our old cronies? You know, any any of one that we used to work with recently, or yeah, Willie Munch is doing good with three fifty Grace. He's so. doing it. it it's in a uh, it's a gluten free, complete, totally gluten free menu. That's interesting. I, I wonder, and knowing Willie, it's a gluten free menu, but I'm sure the food is still pretty <laughs> kind of top notch and and really really oh, good. Yeah, without a doubt, it's it's his eclectic style. Yeah, yeah. I worked with Willie. Uh, for a short time at, um, oh, I forget the name of the place. It was the first place I ever cooked. It was on 19th Street. It was a Rick Maggard restaurant. Um, 19th? Yeah. Oh, um, Cafe Society. Cafe Society, yeah. You were down with uh, um, Steve Selecki. Pat and Selecki and Pat Gillardi. Yep. Yep. And Willie um, would, he, Rick brought him in for maybe a three or four month period. And he'd just come in just for main service, you know? And now he always had on, he, he didn't wear shorts and he always had on like some nice, some Cole Hans or some nicer loafers that he would cook in. And, uh, and then at the end of the shift, he would kind of scrape off the bottoms of the shoes and kind of oil the tops of the shoes so they would look nice again. And then he would go out into the dining room. <laughs> That's Willie. He's funny. But, uh, I worked with him at um, uh, Crud Edge. Because uh, I originally went down there behind the bar. And then every time they needed someone in the kitchen, they'd call me back. And, and crud ads, I mean, some pretty notable people in terms of chefs came out of that place. I mean, we've got you, we've got Willie. Did Sam McGann work there? Yeah, he worked at the original one. Not the, I don't think he worked at um, the Second Street location. Uh-huh. I think he was up at uh, the original location, which okay. put out phenomenal food. Yeah. He had Chuck's ass. Yeah. And then Chuck took, Chuck actually went in after it um, closed and turned it into the big tomato. Ah, uh, yes. And the big tomato. I liked the big tomato. He did a good job with that. That was Chuck. And he, I forget who his partner was on that. I do too. I know. I can't remember. They, they did it might have been right before you. Yeah, I can't if remember. I'm remembering correctly. It was um they they did a nice job with that one. And that was a good spot. I mean, it was right on the ocean front, south end of the beach. It was uh oh, I love I love when I was managing that place. Yeah. I mean, you, you couldn't ask for a better spot to work. You yeah. beautiful view all, all night. Yep. You, you had better better people than, you know, Atlas. Uh-huh. Just, just, just because it was, it was higher dollar. It didn't make them better people, but I don't know. I've ran, I've, I had a lot of really nice North End people in there. Yeah, I think in terms of customers, certainly, 
It, it also is interesting, and this is one thing that I think Mike and Corey did a good job of, was when the, and I, th- and I think this stands for a lot of restaurants, when the quality of what's being produced goes up, the wait staff are looking at making more money from tips, which makes their jobs that much more desirable. I mean, there's almost a line of people waiting to take their position if they leave, you know? I mean, oh, yeah. It, and it, it just enables them to be pickier and choosier in terms of, of who is representing that restaurant and how they, and, and kind of what you are, not demanding, but what you're asking your wait staff to do in terms of how they interact with the customers. And, and of course, customers are expecting something else too. But I think it just, it, it, it gives you the ability to, across the board, produce a better quality product, so to speak. I agree. And, um, and I remember uh, when I took over managing, because first, first stint, I was bartending and I'd, you know, help out. And then I left. And when I came back, Rick wanted me to manage the whole place. Mm -hmm. And I remember I used to have to give the waiters tests. And I don't know if you remember, all you got was a paper menu with just the item listed. And Mm -hmm. it was a waiter's job to run you through that whole thing, describing each dish. I mean, to me, that was true dining. You know what I mean? It made the waiter and the customer integral part of the whole meal together. And I always liked that. But um, I used to have to give them tests. And if you didn't pass it, if you failed two tests, you were gone. And yeah. I had a buddy I brought in uh, from a restaurant. I had worked at a Paisano's. You remember Bamboo Hut Paisano? Yeah, I do. Yep. We used to have a, a one out in Kemp's River. I, I was actually the first time I was promoted to running a kitchen. And, you know, I definitely was not a chef at that point. And, um, I brought a guy over with me who's a good waiter, but he, he, I ended up having to fire him because he just, I kept telling him, Tony, you got to get this down, dude. Exactly. It was easier for me going from kitchen to waiter because I would, I knew the dish. I knew how the fish came in and how everything was prepared. It's a good, so I could really, I could really, we used to have a pool every night that everybody put 20 in and whoever sold the most of whatever dish was picked won the pool. Well, I always won because I could describe it so well that you just made the people hungry for it. <laughs> no, and that's, that's so true. It's, um, and, you know, and I, and I know that's a kind of an important piece of so many restaurants. So, you know, they, 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 they have a list of specials for the night or, 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 you know, they'll go down and they taste a different dish. They'll have the staff taste, you know, a, an entree and, a, and an app and, and then talk about it briefly. And there's only but so much time to do that. But I think it really does make a big difference for the staff because, you know, they, they have actually eaten the food and somebody's talked about it and, and disgusted. And that's, that is, if you're going out to a restaurant, that's it. That is what you want. It's always interesting when you say to the server, well, you know, we're, we're trying to decide between these two dishes here. And, you know, if they have no clue, really, they can kind of BS you a little bit towards one of them. But I lo- I've always been more of a fan of them being able to say, well, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy the rockfish because of the following, but I would actually 
get the pork because it has this and this, and I like the the, the side dishes that are with it, et cetera. And I don't know. It's just it's a, it's a knowledge thing that that makes such a difference. Oh, I agree. Um, goes back to wine and everything. At Coyote, we used remember we used to have the wine tastings and and le- and classes every Tuesday. Had to be there early for that, and yep. you always had to have lineup where one of each special was up. So the staff, like you said, the staff can taste them. You ask questions about them. We can explain everything so that they go out with the knowledge. And in every case that I've done that in restaurants where there has been a lineup versus restaurants where there hasn't been a lineup, the lineup has always sold more of those specials. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's correct. It's uh yeah, we um, we were in um, Charleston not long ago, and uh, we ate at a restaurant. This was like for my my first anniversary. Ate at this restaurant called Husk, and the server there just had this great knowledge of the food, and it made such a difference. Um, you know, and, and it is interesting when you go into a restaurant. You always want the customer to feel like. When they're talking to the server, like they're the only table that that person's taking care of. They're not rushing to go off and do something else or they're not, you know, and that's kind of a difficult thing to create in a restaurant. But I think it's, you know, so, so yeah, so you, you did have an advantage having worked in the kitchen and then, and then out in the front of the house, you know, because your understanding of the food was, was that much greater. Oh, without a doubt. It allowed my sales to be greater too. You know what I mean? So I could make more money. Exactly right. And those things all build on themselves, don't they? <laughs> yes, they do. Yep. Very cool. Well, so let's see. Anything else uh, on, on your mind at this point? No, just how, I mean, how, you know, I guess at two o'clock today, we find out if we get shut down again. I guess, what what state are you guys in down there? Well, we're North Carolina. So two o'clock today, is that what, is the governor making an announcement? Yeah, Northam comes on and they're all thinking he's going to knock it back to the go only again. And so, so if that happens, does that actually, I mean, are places then closed or? Well, the ones you don't want to do to go, yeah. I mean, most of them, most of them I know of stayed open and didn't do too badly. Mm-hmm. But this being the second time around, and people people have been doing this so long, I don't think there's the money that was there last time because mm-hmm. people were quite generous, they were quite supportive, and I don't think I don't think they're going to have it in them like they did back in March. That's a pretty valid point because, and I, re- I remember that. I mean, I even recall when this all, when this pandemic got rolling, people would go to the grocery store to pick up groceries and people are, you know, and there are folks tipping the, the folks who are bringing the groceries out. And, and I think you might be right that the novelty is wearing off, <laughs> you know? People want this to end somehow. And uh, we're going to have to see what all happens. 
So, yeah, how has how is, uh, how is this pandemic affected, you know, you or any of your friends thus far? Well, my girlfriend, she works at Big Sam's in Dockside. You remember that place? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, they're, um, they're hurt and said they're having their worst winter ever. Huh. Um, a lot of their clientele is older from, like, Westminster, Canterbury, right down the street. Yep. And they're not getting the turnout that they got because they're scared. Yeah, they don't want to leave. You know, Sam's Sam's is still doing well. Um, he put up a big outside tent. He's got about ten tables in there and TVs and heaters. Yeah. So you know, he's been he's he has been really adapting well as he's gone on. Um, yeah, this whole thing's been going on. He's <laughs> adapted. You got nine tables inside. Mm-hmm. That is what they're able to use with the spacing and all. Yeah, the uh, eating inside versus outside is so critical. It's um, we decided a good while ago. We went, we ate inside for uh, my wife's birthday, which was you know nu- numerous months ago, and it was in this sushi restaurant, low ceilings. <laughs> I, I'm sure it's an older building. The air circulation isn't very good. It just every bit of it, you know, we finished, we had a wonderful meal. It was really good, but we got out of there and we thought, all right, that's the last time we're doing that. It just seemed, I don't know. They, they the, the bar, they had plexiglass barriers between everyone, which I, I guess is good, but it's, it's still, we're all still breathing the same air. So and that's that's the whole thing is all what gets me is I mean I'm not a scientist but I'm a very logical person. Yep. And logic logic dictates what I don't breathe going ten feet from the door to a table has no effect whatsoever on this whole disease. Yep. None of it. You yep. sit down, and take your mask off. You're breathing. The air is being circulated by the system unless there's a HEPA filter or one of those. You know, other type of filters in there. You're just you're just moving it around. That's, and yeah. some of these some of these regulations they have are just ridiculous. Nope, I think that is correct. It's uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I I think there are. I don't know. It was interesting. I I talked with another friend yesterday, um, who. Earlier in his life, he, he worked in restaurants for about 10 years, but now he's a, uh, the, the head of a, a marketing department at a biotech company, and they're actually producing machines that are making the vaccines, you know. Um, oh, wow. And, uh, and the company I used to work for is doing the same thing, or, or, they're, or they're producing the little vials that they're going to be distributed in, or or they're storing them, you know, at, you know, a hundred degrees below zero, or, I mean, it's just, and so it's been interesting talking with some of those folks because we don't, I think the rest of the public doesn't have a clear picture as to what's going on with all of that. But at the same time, they're also pretty honest in, in terms of, you know, the volume of, of uh, the vaccines that are, are available, when more are going to be available, you know, whatever. I, I think we're going to be lucky if we're able to get a vaccine, even, even if this is released this weekend. I think uh, 
the general public will be lucky to get a hold of it until the middle of the summer. Oh, I agree. So I totally agree with that. I mean, they, they would have to super produce everything. And then even if you got it, it's getting distributed. Yeah. 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 Distribution. I mean, that's a whole nother world unto itself. It is. Yep. Yep. So, you know, because there's only so many places that can hold something at minus 100 degrees. That's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, every doctor's office doesn't have a super freezer. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, somehow it's uh, so there, there are still a bunch of hurdles that, that have to be uh, climbed for this to, to, for us to deal with all of this. Luckily there's some smart minds at work on it, but, uh, we have a ways to go. So. Oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. So well, Lawrence, I think I may need to keep on rolling. My brother was, I'm very glad to have talked to you this morning. I'm glad I got to talk with you. It's, it has been way too long and, uh, yeah, it was really good to chat. I loved it. Yeah, I did too, man. Really, so much catching up with you. Yeah, without a doubt. All right. Well, let's stay in touch, and um, uh, we'll we'll talk again before long. Hey, brother, you have a good one. All right, you too. Thanks, man. Yep. Bye. Bye. Hey, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me on the Restaurant Reality Show. Please remember to tell your friends that these shows are available to listen to for free in any, and I mean any app that supports podcasts whatsoever. I hope you enjoyed this interview and it's enabled you to let go of all the, the stuff that life seems to be throwing at you these days as a little bit of fun in your life is an essential thing. So now go on, enjoy the rest of your day or night, and please remember the following. Take care of your local restaurants as we really need them in our lives.